So I can truly say I've been privileged to enjoy a long career working with archives and manuscripts. But my work has involved much more than working with archives and manuscripts. I've also been responsible for pictures, oral history and maps, all manner of published Australiana, from rare books to ephemera and everything in between. I've always had responsibility for reader services, and at the State Library of New South Wales, I oversighted two small businesses providing preservation and consultancy services. But as I'm speaking for the Women's Archives Project, it's archives I will mostly focus on today. I should explain that when I refer to archives, I'm talking about the personal records that are typically collected by institutions such as libraries. I've never worked with government or corporate records. My first experience collecting personal papers was in 1980, shortly after I'd been assigned to the special collections at the Bath Smith Library, University of Adelaide. And I worked with two colleagues to collect the personal papers of Mary Clark. And here's Mary photographed around the time I met her. Mary was the youngest of 10 children of Sir Josiah Simon, who was a prominent Adelaide lawyer. And when he was Attorney General in South Australia, he was one of the great advocates for federation. Mary loved the performing arts and spent some time working for a touring British theatre company founded by Alan Wilkie and Freedsweed Hunter Watts, and it was known as the Alan Wilkie and Freedsweed Hunter Watts Theatre Company. Although now largely forgotten, the company gave an astonishing 14,000 performances across Australia from 1916 until the Depression years, and very many of them were Shakespeare. So the three of us would meet at Mary's property in the Adelaide Hills one day a week over the quieter summer period, We'd start by feeding carrots to Mary's horses. She was horse mad. Um, and before we got to work on sorting her papers for transfer to the university library, and that's Mary as a child, <laughs> seated on her pony with her top-hatted father and older sister Angel. They were a well-to-do family. After nearly 40 years, I don't remember much about Mary's papers, but I remember much else about those visits. We would stop for lunch, which Mary had cooked on a wood stove. Her cat, Fleance, showing interest in whether any titbits would fall from the table. Mary's house was filled with art and antiquities. She kept ephemera and newspaper cuttings in an Elizabethan wooden chest, a huge wooden chest. Minoan stone lions guarded her front door. There was a ceramic tang statuette of a war horse and a large Renoir chalk drawing of horses. When Mary wasn't watching TV, she covered the screen with a colourful tea towel also featuring a horse, so her taste was eclectic. Mary talked about her life over lunch and I remember hearing about her childhood in the nursery in the family mansion, Manoa, in the Adelaide Hills, and going downstairs to say goodnight to her parents, who wore evening clothes for dinner before she was put to bed. She also said she ate nursery food for far too long because she was the um, oldest child, and I think she didn't like soft-boiled eggs for that reason. She did like French champagne, she told us, and on the last day we went to work on a papers, we took a bottle for lunch, and that was certainly the first time I had drunk French wine, though not the last. 
While at the Bar Smith, I also worked to better organise and describe the voluminous papers of Daisy Bates. Daisy's champion in the university was the Professor of Classics and Comparative Philology, Professor John Fitzherbert. She valued this recognition of her work, which was not much valued by the men of science of the time, or really since, and in gratitude she bequeathed her, the copyright in her papers, as well as her papers, to the university. And this is a word list from Daisy's papers that are held in the National Library. It, it's quite legible, <laughs> but most of Daisy's handwriting is awful, um, not helped by the conditions in which she wrote from a camp at Uldia Soak, which is near the transcontinental railway line, 1,100 kilometres from Adelaide on the western, eastern edge of the Nullarbor Plain. And she lived in a tent. Having spent so much time working on Daisy's papers early in my career, I will forever recognise her writing, particularly her bad handwriting. Since I started in special collections, my work has always involved reader services as well as collecting and making collections more accessible to researchers through improved cataloguing and description. I love this combination, especially assisting readers to find information they need that can be somewhat hidden in archives and daunting for time press researchers to find. Once, during the 1980 Festival of Arts, a woman came into the reading room, explained she was visiting from Sydney, and asked if we held any papers relating to her husband, her late husband, the writer Max Afford. And here she is. I was really delighted to find this photo in the National Library, taken just one year later when Thelma was interviewed by Hazel de Berg for the Oral History Program. I'd never heard of Max, Admittedly, he died before I was born. But he was an, a playwright, and quite a well-known playwright, but perhaps even more important, he was a pioneering producer of radio drama for the ABC. And in that capacity, he was responsible for making the works of many other playwrights accessible to a wide audience. Six years later, by which time I was heading the South Australiana collections at the State Library, there was a grand opening of the newly renovated Mortlock Wing, first opened in 1884, and the most beautiful library in Australia. And it's not just me who thinks that. The Mortlock Library was the only Australian library featured in one of those lists beloved of travel magazines of the 20 most beautiful libraries in the world. Anyway, a friend who attended the opening event, which was very grand, told me she'd found herself standing next to a most interesting woman who wanted to meet me as she had something she wished to donate to the library and it was Thelma Afford again. I subsequently learnt Thelma had been a theatre designer who costumed two of the productions for the South Australian State Centenary in 1936. Max's prize-winning historical play, Colonel Light the Founder, which has sunk into <laughs> oblivion, since 1936, and a really ambitious event called the Pageant of Progress. A very large sketchbook of Thelma's costume designs for the pageant had turned up after being missing for five decades, and it was this she wanted to donate. I was pleased to have remembered Thelma from our earlier encounter, possibly memorable because I hadn't been working in special collections very long, 
and was always convinced that I just didn't know where to find where things were hidden. Um, and I'd failed to find anything about Max. And I never like sending readers away disappointed. And of course, in libraries like the National Library, one rarely does. It's really wonderful that the State Library of South Australia has digitised Thelma's album. So um, this is the costume for Mrs Hindmarsh, um, uh, wife of the first governor of South Australia. Here we have a suffragette, South Australia being the first colony to enfranchise Australian women. I love this one. This is the state's floral emblem, the Sturt Desert Pea. She also designed costumes. This one signifies wheat. This one signifies coal. <laughs> this one signifies industry. This is electricity. And, oh, that's the Overland Telegraph. Not only are they really striking costume designs, but Thelma used some really interesting and unusual fabrics and materials um, to make the costumes. The State Library formally thanked Thelma with an afternoon tea party with her small family in Adelaide, and I remember we had some very elegant pretty fours. And um, this is a photograph of the pageant of progress, this float representing electricity, Oh no, this one's worldwide communications, and this one representing electricity. Thelma's costuming was on a large scale, and her designs were so striking and innovative that she was engaged to costume the sesquicentenary productions in Sydney in 1938, and she lived in Sydney from that time on. Thelma was a generous, lovely person, and when I moved to Sydney in 1988 to take up the position of Mitchell Librarian at the State Library of New South Wales, I accepted her long-standing invitation to lunch. One of my colleagues at the Mitchell Library, Alan Davies, curator of photographs, was working on a major exhibition from the vast collection of the Sydney photojournalist Sam Hood. One day, as I passed Alan's desk, he showed me a striking photo he wanted to include in the exhibition, but he couldn't identify the subject matter. I took one look at it and said I knew exactly what it was. It was a photo of one of Thelma's distinctive and unusual costumes from the 1938 pageant. There was just no mistaking them. Unfortunately, the State Library of New South Wales hasn't digitised that photograph. The Hood collection is enormous. I think it's something like um, 30,000 photos. But here is a photo of Thelma and the model in the um, gauzy hat who would wear the pearl fishing costume on a float in the Sydney parade. And um, I think that's the Overland Telegraph again, which of course was nationally important as well as very important to South Australia. So thus began the process of persuading Thelma that she was as important as her adored husband. Thelma's centenary album was acquired because she wanted to give a beautiful object of some importance to South Australia to the newly created Mortlock Library. She didn't particularly value her own personal archive, which was later acquired by the State Library of New South Wales. Thelma's archive is five boxes, and it included scrapbooks of newspaper cuttings, theatre programs, photographs, and other illustrations of Thelma's work during a long career designing for theatre in Sydney, 
also research files for a book she published uh, in 2004 on the history of uh, Adelaide's little theatres from the 1930s. And the State Library later mounted a display about Thelma based on her archive. The point of these anecdotes is to give you some insight into the extraordinary people we're fortunate to meet through Special Collections work, and perhaps as an aside, the importance of eating for the library. Many a wonderful collection has been acquired after a meal with a potential donor. But above all, the work that goes into making connections and to forging the relationships that lead to important collections being placed in libraries. Many archival collections are offered to libraries at the National Library more than could possibly be taken in. A little material is offered for sale through antiquarian dealers. The papers of Pamela Lyndon Travers, famous as the author of Mary Poppins, are one such example. They were sold to the State Library in my time as Mitchell Librarian by the British antiquarian uh, bookseller Bernard Quaritch. The Travers collection is 28 boxes. It contains correspondence, including some lovely letters written during her childhood in Queensland, a really large collection of her literary papers, notes for talks and lectures, film scripts, drawings and photographs. It's worth noting that good collections lead to research that wouldn't otherwise have happened. In libraries, there is truth to the maxim, if you build it, they will come. I'm willing to bet the Australian journalist Valerie Lawson could not have written her 1999 biography, Out of the Sky She Came, if the Travers papers hadn't ended up in Sydney. Valerie's book was also published in the USA and the UK and inspired a 2003 Australian documentary, The Shadow of Mary Poppins, which was screened on ABC TV. So now many more people know about Travers' Australian origins, which um, wasn't well known. I certainly didn't know she was Australian before the approach. The flip side of Build It and They Will Come is that librarians and archivists also shape what gets collected and preserved. And we need to ask ourselves who is not in the archive and what can be done about it. To actively seek out the unrepresented can be easier said than done in an environment of diminishing budgets, the infamous efficiency dividend stretching back more than three decades in NLA's case. And another comment, we can never be certain how an archive will be used. A biography is an obvious outcome from a rich collection of personal papers. And I couldn't think of an um, example of unusual research arising from the collections I'm highlighting today. But I can quote the example of the papers of an Australian diplomat who had served in Russia. The first use of his papers was not to write a political or diplomatic history, but for research on food in the USSR, because he'd kept every menu from the meals he'd eaten out during his posting. It won't surprise this audience to learn that women are less likely to offer personal collections than men. Tipped off by Anne Butsworth, who has also been involved in the Women's Archives Project since the outset, and who went to school with Katerina, the Clark's only daughter, Dymphna Clark's papers were acquired by the National Library in 2003. Manning Clark had, been trans had begun transferring papers in 1988, with the last instalment transferred in 1991, shortly before his death. 
Dimpfner must have been involved in these transfers because towards um, the end of his life he wasn't at all well. But she never offered her own papers and perhaps she was never asked about them by library staff. To show what little store she put on her papers, here is a photo I commissioned to be taken by a National Library photographer of some of Dimpfner's papers stored in a cupboard in the laundry of her home. Dimpfner's papers run to 44 boxes, which is quite a large personal collection, although dwarfed by Manning's 199 boxes, and her papers are rich with correspondence, her own linguistic research and translating, her work for the Aboriginal Treaty Committee, as well as much about her relationship with Manning. Over the years, I've approached many women to ask if they've retained personal archives. As well as being curious and bold, it helps to be physically strong. I approached Dr Helen Caldicott at a Sydney event at which she was the speaker. She's the Australian paediatrician who became famous for her work in the USA as a leading campaigner for nuclear disarmament. Later, I flew to Byron Bay and drove a hire car to her home outside Bangalore to see the papers, which was stored in a garden pavilion. In the humidity of northern New South Wales, the large cartons had started to deteriorate. I had expected we would finish my visit by talking next steps. But before I'd finished appraising the papers, Helen surprised me by briskly farewelling me, indicating she had an appointment to attend. The surprise became even bigger when Helen made it clear she expected me to take away the papers that very day. Helen is a woman of strong convictions and there was no saying no. <laughs> what was I to do in the days before mobile phones? I lugged to the collapsing boxes to the car and drove back to Byron. To my great relief, before I found a payphone, I found the public library. I threw myself upon the librarian in charge and begged her to store the boxes until they could be couriered back to Sydney. Sometimes acquisition discussions come to naught. In 1997, the State Library of New South Wales received a letter from Gillan Aitken, a London literary agent, one of whose clients was Jermaine Greer. The Australian academic professor Ian Donaldson had passed on to him the name of the colleague who headed the manuscripts collection at the Mitchell Library. Academic researchers often play a useful role in bringing libraries and um, significant archives together. And Aitken was inquiring about uh, the State Library's interest in purchasing Greer's papers. Well, we were greatly interested. We sent a British dealer who specialised in modern literary manuscripts with a freelancer who worked for the library in the UK to Greer's home outside Cambridge to appraise and value the papers. Sometime afterwards, Greer seemed to change her mind. The valuer who had visited for the State Library wrote that Greer had commented, and here I quote, that the current PM, John Howard, was running on a racist ticket and she didn't want her stuff in a country which treated their Aboriginal inhabitants so badly. At about the same time, Christine Wallace published her landmark biography of Greer, Untamed Shrew. It's a terrific book. And when I read it, it was apparent that Chris, who um, was a, a prominent journalist, had undertaken a great many interviews with people who'd known Greer, including her mother, Peggy. 
Germaine Greer attempted to novel the book, um, writing in her regular column in The Guardian, just as um, Chris arrived in London hoping to conduct interviews there, that Chris was, and I'm quoting, a parasite, a dung beetle and a flesh eater, and stating that any of her friends who talked to Chris would no longer be her friends. And that certainly made uh, some people with whom Chris had had appointments decide they were no longer available. But at least outside the UK, in America and in Australia, many people did talk to Chris. I contacted Chris to ask about her research papers for the book, and they're now in the Mitchell collection. Four boxes of her research files, including correspondence, her notebooks in which she record, noted interviews that she'd taken, and there's even some audio of some of the interviews she recorded. Before she wrote the Greer book, Chris had written a biography of opposition leader John Hewson, when not much was known about him. The Hewson book was published in 1993, but when Mitchell approached Chris for her Greer papers in 1998, she'd already destroyed the Hewson research. So it's sometimes important to be quick about making an approach for papers. It's also important to keep in touch with donors and depositors after the first transfer. I approached the restaurateur Gay Bilson about her papers, in part because I knew that in an earlier career she'd worked in a library, as had Stephanie Alexander, incidentally, whose papers are in the State Library of Victoria. To highlight just a little held in the 11 boxes of Bilson papers in the National Library, there are handwritten menus and wine lists for every meal ever served at Barara Waters Inn, and in the last week before the restaurant closed, all the kitchen dockets for what was ordered. There is also material relating to Gay's first restaurant experience, working with her then-husband Tony in Tony's Bongu, and later in Benelong at the Sydney Opera House. There are menus Gay collected from meals she'd eaten elsewhere in Australia and overseas, and information about special feasts, such as the famous gala dinner for the seventh symposium of Australian gastronomy held at the National Gallery during the surreal exhibition, surrealism exhibition, and it had a surreal theme. Gay also retained correspondence from diners, and her acid replies to those she felt unfairly complained are a treat to read. I saw Gay's recipe cards filed in shoeboxes, expensive shoe purchases, <laughs> when I visited her home at McLaren Vale. And I will digress and say she served me Amish biscuits called nothings, thin wafers of dough which are deep fried and dusted with icing sugar. Perhaps not surprisingly, Gay wasn't ready to hand over her recipes for nothings or anything else. Gay made two transfers of papers to NLA, and later, when I heard she'd moved to northern New South Wales, I emailed again expressing interest in further papers and specifically asking about the menus. Alas, she said she'd destroyed everything when she moved, and she seemed more interested in finding a home for her large collection of bird's nests, which I feared would really um, freak out preservation if I'd said yes to that. <laughs> I made some nothings yesterday, so you can try them when we adjourn for afternoon tea, although mine are not nearly as delicious as I remember Gay's to have been. One of, the one of the collections that gave me a great thrill to acquire was the archive of Belinda Mackay, the daughter of feminist activist and campaigner and peace, 
for Peace and Human Rights, Jessie Street. Jessie is a heroine of mine, to quote Judy Small's song, and I'm a trustee of a small charity in Sydney which honours Jessie. The National Library holds Jessie's papers, and after Belinda's death, I was invited to visit her Braidwood home to go through her papers. And here's Belinda wearing a striking cameo brooch, a family heirloom given to her great-grandmother Theodosia Ogilvie on her honeymoon in Venice in 1858. The Street family are keepers, and Belinda's archive contains two decades of letters from Belinda to her mother and from Jessie to Belinda while Jessie was travelling the world from the mid-40s to the mid-60s. There are also some lovely letters from Belinda's children, Andrew and Margot, and children's letters are quite a rare survivor in archives. Whenever Jessie was photographed working, she seemed to be wearing the cameo. She was the only female member of the Australian delegation to the 1945 San Francisco Conference which founded the United Nations, and she continued to play a big role in its early years, including ensuring the Declaration of Human Rights made specific reference to the rights of women. And here is the brooch, now part of the National Library's collection, very generously given from Jessie's eldest granddaughter, Margot Gatenby, who might well have enjoyed wearing the brooch herself or passing this heirloom onto her family. And when Margot gave me the brooch, I can honestly say it brought a tear to my eye. It was incredibly moving. True keepers go to great effort and sometimes expense to maintain their archive over many years. Jessie Street brought her papers back to Australia from long residences in the UK and the US. Germaine Greer also travelled widely and her archive includes inventories from London storage companies which include references to the many filing cabinets stored while she worked in the US and lived as a tax exile in Italy. Anthropologist Professor Diane Bell, whose papers came to the National Library via a tip from Mari Coleman, one of the founders of the Australian Women's Archives Project, lugged her papers from Victoria to Sydney and Canberra, to Central Australia through periods of fieldwork, to academic positions in two states of the USA, to South Australia and finally to Canberra where she now lives. Diane's papers are extensive, the first transfer some 70 boxes and they go back at least to her early teacher training in Victoria. Back to Jessie and Belinda. Library staff often say that manuscript collections talk to each other. I like to think of Jessie talking to her daughter, although they are well separated on the shelves, with Jessie's papers at MS 2683 and Belinda's at MS 10365. They are linked through the catalogue record, of course. By talking, what we really mean is that a researcher can examine papers from different people who've had some shared involvements or whose paths have crossed, crossed sometimes being the operative word, to gain different perspectives on a moment or a place in history. To give some examples from women whose papers I've played some role in inquiring, the extensive journals of Helen Garner and her friend and fellow writer, Drusilla Majeska, will definitely talk to each other and perhaps regret it can no longer be over a cup of tea at one of their kitchen tables. As will those of Anne Summers and Suzanne Bellamy, 
both active in the founding of Sydney Women's Liberation. Anne became a journalist, publisher and femocrat after gaining her PhD in history at Sydney University as a young woman. Suzanne also has a PhD from Sydney University, hers awarded earlier this year and is known as an artist and activist. As well as depositing her papers, another acquisition arising from AWAP Connections, Suzanne safeguarded the papers of Bessie Guthrie, now also in the National Library. Bessie had lived in Glebe all her life and amongst other things was an activist for girls who'd experienced neglect, domestic violence and imprisonment, many for being said to be in moral danger. Bessie provided runaway girls with a safe house in her home and in her mid-sixties, when she walked into the newly opened Women's Liberation House in Glebe, which was located in Derwent Street, the same street Bessie lived in, she exclaimed, I've been waiting for you women to get here all my life. Now I want to turn to the issue of managing collections and providing access. Most collections of personal papers are at least six boxes and many are very much larger. And here's an archives box for those of you who don't know what one looks like. Each box contains a lot of paper. Greer's archive, which was eventually purchased for the University of Melbourne archives in 2013, <coughs> runs to 487 boxes and occupies 82 metres of shelving. In NLA, only the papers of Robert Menzies are more extensive at 639 boxes. For me, Greer is the one that got away. Aside from my earlier involvement at the State Library of New South Wales, I also tried to acquire her archive for the National Library. She twice visited us to discuss its acquisition, and I also met with her agent in London and visited her Essex home to see the archive. The National Library made an offer for the purchase of the archive in April 2013, a few months before the acquisition was announced by Melbourne University. But I can truly say I'm glad the archive ended up in another important Australian archive. It's perhaps the most important archive held in the University of Melbourne. And um, the university has done an enormous amount of um, processing of the collection. It, donors gave um, a large amount of money which enabled them to actually individually catalogue each item in the collection and that's something that um, the National Library could not have done. Even down to the index cards on which Greer noted her research for the female eunuch, there's something like 500, every, every index card has been catalogued, as Melbourne University calls it, indicating what she was referring to, the themes, the writers, etc, etc. NLA could never have done that. And of course it's quite different from the usual approach to um, archival collection description. To make the contents of many boxes of archives useful and accessible to researchers, archivists provide descriptive lists of their major contents called finding aids. They outline the major series, things like correspondence, diaries, photographs, research notes, and in the case of correspondence, for example, they outline the principal correspondence and the subjects covered. Sometimes. Even at this high level of description, it's time-consuming work, and nowadays libraries ask donors and depositors to undertake this listing, as it's simply beyond their diminishing staff resources. 
The NLA is far from the nation's more populous capital cities, but it has always been national in its aspiration and has always put priority to making its collection records accessible as widely as possible so researchers can easily discover what they need. In the olden days, it was through rhonioid and microcopied catalogue cards. Now it's through online, catalog, online records. There is an online catalogue record for every single manuscript collection in the National Library, and all the finding aids for the library's larger manuscript collections are published online. This is a heroic achievement. I'm not sure that any other large research library in the world has been able to achieve this. So here's an example of an online finding aid. It's not a perfectly crafted guide to a manuscripts collection, such as an archivist might have produced in the past after much concentrated work of analysis, sorting, arrangement and description. It comes from a box list compiled by a volunteer, in this case me, and then magicked into an online finding aid by team members working in manuscripts at the National Library using some of the wonderful tools developed in collaboration with IT colleagues. There are a lot of I and me words in this talk, but the work of building, maintaining and providing access to archives is a huge collaborative effort. It's never the work of any single person. A busy archivist could not devote the time I did to making this listing of Belinda Mackay's papers. For me it was a labour of love. I knew Belinda and I really was enormously fond of her. A busy archivist might just have noted a series of photos, perhaps with a date range and with some broad subject terms. I could take the time to note that the photos of Jessie Lillingston's family home, Yugalbar, on the Clarence River near Grafton, included Aboriginal workers, hay raking, children with a governess, and that there are photographs of the interior and garden of um, Liveringa, um, the, the, uh, in Elizabeth Bay, the street family home in Elizabeth Bay, and the property was subdivided after Jessie's father-in-law's death in 1940, and there's nothing left of Lingeringa. Four Onslow Avenue is completely occupied by blocks of flats now. Every word in the National Library's finding aids is exposed via Trove and Google, meaning someone wanting to find photographs of Liveringa and its garden to see how the elite of Sydney society once lived, or of a governess, or of Aboriginal people at work, would not have to think I wonder if there might be something in the papers of the street family. A trove search on their topic would enable them to go straight to that particular file in Belinda's papers or order a copy of the photographs from wherever they lived through the Copies Direct service. Today I've talked about papers because they are characteristic of my period of working in archives and the medium I'm personally most comfortable with. But in the last few years, the National Library has developed the capacity to collect, manage, preserve and make accessible digital archives. This is not software that can be brought off the shelf. It's another example of the really significant and innovative world-leading work the National Library does. Anne Summers began depositing her papers in 1985 and at 105 boxes, it's another large collection. 
but her last transfer in 2017 is of her digital records and was the first large digital archive to be taken in using the new digital collection management system. And when I say large, Anne's digital archive comprised some 12,000 files and was nearly 39 gigabytes in size. The file types include Word documents, JPEG, TIFF and other image files, PDFs, text, web pages, Excel spreadsheets, PowerPoints, sound and movie files in various formats. There are 28,363 emails with 11,160 attachments and it's going to be a really significant research archive in the future. Finally, I'm often asked what is my favourite thing among the archives I've worked with and it's a bit like being asked who's your favourite child but I'll end by showing you two of my favourite things, neither of them really from a true archive. The first is something created by Elizabeth Cook, the wife of Captain Cook. I always said this was my favourite item in the collection of the State Library of New South Wales. It's a rare and poignant historic document from a woman connected to Australia in the 18th century. Elizabeth Cook lived to the astonishing age of 93, outliving not only her husband but all six of their children. During Cook's third voyage, she was embroidering this waistcoat for his presentation at court on return. The waistcoat was made from tarpa cloth collected in Tahiti during Cook's second Pacific voyage and she abandoned the project after news of his death in Hawaii. The embroidered panels never made up. Alongside is a photograph of a completed dress waistcoat belonging to Cook with similar delicate silk floral embroidery and small sequins. It gave me a real thrill when I was visiting Te Papa, the National Museum in Wellington, New Zealand, to see this um, waistcoat on display. It's a nice kind of twin to the Tarpa panels. And from the National Library, I'll end with the artist Nora Hyson, who's represented in the manuscripts, pictures and oral history collections, and also made a generous bequest to the National Library. I feel fortunate to have met Nora before she died in 2003. Here she is, photographed with her dog Bosey in the garden of her Hunters Hill home in 1999. Bosey seems completely unconcerned that Nora is feeding a small flock of pigeons. I think he was a very old dog. I love Nora's oral history interview, recorded by Heather Rusden in 1994. It's a really rich audio document. Heather's a wonderful interviewer, informed, sensitive and perceptive. I love the ambient noise, a ticking antique clock which chimes at intervals, Bosey snuffling, planes flying overhead. Nora lived under a flight path and occasionally one would cross her house. She was a heavy smoker and she can be heard striking matches, sometimes repeatedly throughout the interview, followed by a deep drawback as she inhales. And um, she was a woman who... Um, you wouldn't describe her as a voluble talker and there are many meaningful pauses before um, Nora speaks which are a really important part of the interview. There are three interviews with Nora in the National Library's collections. The first recorded by the pioneering oral historian Hazel de Berg in 1965. The second by art educator Dr Denise Hickey in 1971 and all are available in full online so you can listen to them at home. In Heather's interview, recorded when 
Nora was 83. Despite being a deeply private person, Nora reveals a great deal, including some really painful memories from her past. It shows the value of oral history, I believe, and it's lovely that Nora's voice will live on forever thanks to this work of the NLA. I was pleasantly surprised to discover that most of the women whose papers I've referred to today are also represented in the National Library's oral history collection, which is the largest in the country. Dymph McClark, Jessie Street, Suzanne Bellamy, Anne Summers, Gay Bilson, Helen Caldicott and Chris Wallace have all been interviewed, as well as Thelma Afford, whose interview I mentioned earlier. Some of the interviews are not yet open to access and not all are available online as yet, but oral history is another aspect of the National Library's unique and rich collections that I have thoroughly enjoyed being a part of creating. I hope my remarks today have given you a sense of what a wonderful time I've had working in library special collections and perhaps also some insights about aspects of the work done by archivists and librarians. Thank you. Thank you.